About six years ago uh, was the first time that I preached at New Beginnings. It was over in the old worship center, and Pastor Todd came to me, and he, and, uh, he said, Hey, Darby, in about four weeks you're going to preach. And I said, Hey, Pastor, I don't think so. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. And I was nervous, not going to lie, uh, but, but we did it, and, and the sermon that I preached that day uh, is much like what I want to preach and, and, and think on today with you. And that's around the issue of worship. That's what we're going to be looking at today, this issue of worship. What does it mean to worship God? How does God uh, call us to worship? What is the standard of God's worship? And why is it important that we think about this and that we talk about this? And I think the reason is, is because apart from salvation, worship is the most important issue for the believer. Apart from salvation, this is the most important issue for, for the believer. I think it matters more than anything else. Why do I think that? Because I believe that when we get this issue right, when we get worship right, it causes every other issue in our life, every other priority, every other person, every other thing in our life to find its rightful place. It's, it's important. And I think we see this emphasized in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Uh, you remember Jesus said, but seek first. In other words, make first, prioritize first, set to be first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. What were the things Jesus was talking about when he said all these things? Well, what was he talking about? He was talking about all the things that you and I worry about, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, where we're going to go, how we're going to make it, how are we going to survive in our lives. Jesus is saying, get your eyes off these things. These are all the things, all those little things, all those small things that you and I make big things when we get our eye off the main thing, right? That's what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, don't set your eyes on those. Set your eyes on the kingdom. Seek the kingdom of God, set your eyes on God. He says, set your hearts and your minds and your spiritual eyes on God, on the thing that matters most. Well, what's at the heart of that command? At the heart of that command is worship. It is the prioritizing of God as first in our lives. That is why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You remember that? What was the greatest commandment? He went back to Deuteronomy 6, where we just spent five weeks in our next-gen series, and he said, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus said, prioritize God above everything else. Love him first and love him most, because in doing this, everything else will find its rightful place. And I think when we get this right, when we get worship right, there are three things we're going to see happen. Let me tell you just real quick what those three things are. First one is this. It's going to clarify our view of God. Worship clarifies our view of God. What do I mean? I mean that as we prioritize God as first in our lives, we see him more clearly. Our vision of God clarifies when we stop obstructing our view of him by putting things between he and and us. It, worship clarifies our view of God. It helps us to see him more clearly. Here's the second thing it does. It clarifies our view of self. Worship clarifies our view of self. As we see God clearly, we see ourselves clearly. When we see his holiness and his power and his glory, we can't help but then see our sin and our 
weakness. And why is it important that we see ourselves clearly? Because the more clearly I see myself, the more clearly I see the distance between God and me and the more I treasure Jesus. Are you with me? The more clearly I see myself, the more clearly I see the distance between me and God and the more that makes me treasure Jesus. So worship is going to give me a, a clarifying, it's going to help clarify my view of God, which is then going to help clarify my view of self. And here's the last thing. It's then, because of those things, going to inspire obedience. Well, what is obedience? That is prioritizing the prioritizing of God's plan and God's will over my own. You see, when I see God for who he is and myself for who I am, I can't help but be inspired to obey because once again, it positions me to look full on into what Christ has done for me. And when I see the inexplicable generosity of God extended toward me in Christ, the only response I can give is obedience. Listen, for the grateful believer in Jesus Christ, for the heart that has been transformed by the gospel, obedience to God is not something you have to do. It is something you get to do. It becomes a joy. It becomes the overflow of a life lived out in gratitude. This is what worship does. Clarifies our view of God, clarifies our view of self, and inspires obedience. So now as we're diving in this morning, I want us to kind of start, I think it's important that we start with a working definition of worship. Now, this is a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing trying to define worship because we all have definitions. Even as I say that word, you have things that come to your mind uh, about worship. And this definition we're going to use is, is not original to me, um, and, and uh, it's probably not perfect, but it's the one I've operated under for 20-plus Years and here it is. It's how we'll build our framework today. Worship is an active response to God whereby we turn our mind's attention and our heart's affection upon the Lord in declaration of His great worth. I'm going to leave that up for just a minute. Worship is an active response to God whereby we turn our mind's attention and our heart's affection upon the Lord in declaration of his great worth. At the heart of this definition is really what is the essential dynamic of worship, and that is this, revelation and response, meaning God reveals himself to us and we respond to him. Well, how does God reveal himself to us? He's done it in creation through his word, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the church. God reveals himself to us and we then respond. And how do we respond? By seeing that revelation and giving him our mind's attention and our heart's affection. And we do this to declare that he is worthy of it. The word worship actually comes from an old English word called worthship, which literally just means to ascribe value, to ascribe worth to something. Well, here's what I know in church, what I hope you can stand with me. There is nothing in the universe of higher value than the Lord God. Amen? He is the highest value in the universe. And so, 
That is why he is worthy of our mind's attention and our heart's affection. So I want you to grab your Bible and let's go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, it's a very familiar story in the Bible. Now you may be thinking, all right, as, as pastors and ministers and you know, people that work at the church, you guys probably don't ever get worship wrong. And that's just not true. Uh, I spent 25 years as, as a worship pastor leading worship in churches. And in 25 years, you have plenty of time to get it right and plenty of times where you get it wrong. So I'm going to tell you about a time that I got it wrong and you're not going to judge me. Ready? And so uh, I've been doing this for a very long time. And when I was around seven or 18 or 17 or 18, I started leading worship in churches for like revivals. You guys remember revivals where you would legit go to church all week long, every night of the week. Young people, I'm not joking. It existed. It was real. We did it. Every night of the week we went to church and we would, I would lead worship for these revivals and, and they were always pretty small churches that I would, that I would lead in. And there was one particular one, it was a small church, a hundred people, right? Um, at this revival and, and uh, I didn't know a lot about music in those early years. So I would just kind of write out the songs we were going to sing and, and this little church, they didn't have a cool band like this. There was a piano player. That was it. And, uh, and so I would go in and say, hey, here are the songs. She said, great. And on the last night of this revival, which is the most important night of the revival, if you've ever been to one, the last one's the big one, right? On the last night of the revival, I, I, I go in, I give her the song. She says, hey, Matt, listen, um, after we do the worship part, I got to go. We've had, we've had a family emergency. And I said, hey, okay, no problem. Would you please tell the pastor so he knows that you got to leave? That way he's got a plan for the end of the service. She said, yeah, I'll let him know, no problem. Great. He's going to know. I know. We're good. No, nothing to worry about. So we navigate through uh, the service, and we, 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 we come to the end of the worship part, and we end that, and the pastor gets up, he begins to preach, and I see her slip out, but that doesn't worry me. Why? Because she told him, and they got a plan. I don't have to worry about it. And... Um, we come to the whole end of the sermon. It's the most important part. He's, he's drawing the net. He's, he's calling people to salvation. And he does that, hey, I want everybody, every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, that, that thing that we do sometimes. And he, he did that. And then he said something that I didn't expect him to hear because I obeyed. I had my head bowed and my eyes closed. And he said, uh, while you pray, I'm going to ask Matt, if he would, to come up and play softly on the piano. Now, see, right now, none of you are panicking for me, and here's why. Because you don't know that then and now. I don't know how to play the piano. <laughs> I do not know how to play the piano. Can't do it. Couldn't pull it off. And uh, what's important for you to know is that as a 17- and 18-year-old young man, uh, the music that I was listening to did not foster knowing songs that I could go play on a piano in church because I wasn't listening to Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith and all, I, none, Bill and Gloria didn't even know their name at the time. And instead, I was listening to, to Guns N' Roses, bless the Lord, and, and, and Whitesnake and uh, Motley Crue. Why did that get the loudest amen all morning? That ain't right. There's some sinners in this room. That's who I was listening to, right? These were the people nursing my soul and doing a great job. And so I tell you that to say, here I am. <laughs> heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I'm going to ask Matt if he would come up and play softly on the piano. Now, church, I want to tell you something. I didn't know uh, Mary had a little lamb. I didn't know chopsticks. 
I did not know Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I knew one song on the piano. I knew one song. And that song was Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue. It's the only song I knew. I didn't know anything else. That's not a lie. I knew nothing else musically on the piano. I could not produce anything other than that. And it's because I loved it so much, I just made myself figure it out. And so your next question, the answer is yes to your question. Right there in that revival, while people responded to the gospel, I slipped up to the piano and with trembling hands, begging Jesus not to kill me, I gave them Home Sweet Home by Motley Crue. That's a real story. That is 100% true. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because from the outside looking in, what I was doing looked a lot like worship. It looked a lot like worship, but, but it wasn't. And I don't want for our church, I don't want for New Beginnings that we just look a lot like worship. I want us to know what this is, and I want it to transform our hearts and inspire our obedience and cause us to see God more clearly and love him more and set him as the first priority of our life. And that's why I think there is infinite value in us diving into God's word together. And so we're going to look at John chapter 4 of this story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And I love this story. Of all the conversations we see Jesus have, this is one of the most fascinating. And and it's fascinating because if you follow the story, what you see is a transition and a transformation in the heart of this Samaritan woman from an outcast to an evangelist. And it all happens in one conversation. She goes from an outcast, Samaritan woman considered unclean, to being a Jesus-loving evangelist. And in that transformation, there is this really beautiful conversation about worship. So I want us to look at that today. John chapter 4, hang in here with me. We're going to read from verse 1 through 26. God's word says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. It's a very interesting phrase, one we'll look at again in a minute. I want you to know now, though, I don't believe this was a geographical necessity. I think it was a spiritual priority. But we'll look at that here in just a minute. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob... Uh, had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, and Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus said, you think you're surprised that a Jew is speaking to you? If you really knew who I was, you would be even more surprised. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And this well is is very deep. What, 
Where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Because the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. If that feels like a hard left turn in the conversation, it's because it is. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, Jesus knew her history, right? He knew why she was drawing water in the heat of the day rather than in the morning. He knew she was in an inappropriate relationship with, with someone. Jesus knew her. She, she didn't know he knew, but Jesus knew, and he pursued her anyway. This is a separate sermon, but I want you to know whatever that thing is that you think Jesus doesn't know, he knows, and he loves you, and he's pursuing you anyway. That's what he's doing right here. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. No kidding. <laughs> you just told me everything there is to know. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when either on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is beginning to reveal himself now. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I'm he. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word and for the glorious truth of the gospel and the salvation we have in Jesus and for the joy that we have in being your children and for the filling of your Holy Spirit. And God, right now, I pray that as we uh, open your word, Lord, that you would cause it to come alive to us, God, that you would magnify the truth of your word. I pray, God, that you would protect your people from anything that has originated in my heart and would just overwhelm us with the everlasting truth of your word. That is what we need. And that is what we ask for. So God, would you come in Jesus' name? Amen. It's a fascinating conversation, right? Absolutely fascinating. Jesus is teaching us about worship. And he says in verse 23 and 24 that God is seeking people to worship him in spirit and truth. As a matter of fact, he says, if you're going to worship God, worship in spirit and truth is the only way you can do it. Spirit and truth worship is the only kind of worship God will accept. So what does that mean? What, is these, this, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Well, let's look at these two dynamics. First, he said it must be in spirit. 
This is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is a lowercase s. This Greek word is, that, that is used here is pneumati, which means the, the human spirit. So that's what we're talking about. Jesus is saying you have to worship from your spirit. You must worship him in and from your spirit. What is that? That is the deepest part of us. Your spirit is where your passion is born. It is where your sincerity is born and your authenticity and your engagement and your enthusiasm is all born in your spirit. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to worship God, you got to worship from that place. Worship in spirit is worship where we are engaged with God from the core of who we are. It is not about going through uh, 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 some motions. This is a soul-level experience. It's that, that's when he says worship in spirit, Jesus saying, in that place where your love is born, where your passion is born, where your authenticity and your sincerity and your joy come from, that's the place in you where worship has to begin, to worship in spirit. And then he says in truth, meaning what? It has to be based on truth. But what is that? I think Jesus said, you need to worship God based on Scripture. It is not enough to be sincere. It's not enough to be sincere. We must be biblical and listen. Biblical worship is what makes worship credible. Worship is not credible as worship if it is not first biblical. This is why I love worship pastors like Zeke Listenby, who I know take every song to God's word and make sure they line up before we bring them into this room and sing them. Because our worship must be biblical. Why does that matter? Because if we are, worship, if we are not worshiping God as he is revealed in Scripture to be, then we are worshiping God as we want him to be. And that's dangerous. Would anybody in here confess with me that they have been guilty of worshiping God as they want him to be, not just as Scripture has revealed him to be? Worshiping in truth means we are going to discover who God is in his word so that we are worshiping him as he has revealed himself to be, not as we want him to be. And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way and the, the truth. I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth of God so that everything we are to know about God, we truly and fully know through Jesus Christ that is as it is revealed to us in God's word. And that's what it means to worship in spirit and truth. It is not just an exercise of the mind. It is not just an expression of the heart, but rather it is a glorious union of all of my affection and my sincerity, um, joining with the renewing of my mind in the truth of God's word. That's what Jesus is trying to unpack for us. So there are three things that I want us to see this morning of, of what this spirit and truth worship is and what it does. There's three things I think we see revealed this morning. Here's the first one. Worship in spirit and truth is the goal of all God's moving. Worship in spirit and truth is the goal of all God's moving. Look at verse 23. 
He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is what? Seeking such people to worship him. Our God is a seeking God and he is seeking worshipers in all that he does. Every move that God makes, he does with a singular purpose in mind and that is to make a worshiper out of you and me to move us into a worship relationship with him. I think we see it back in verse 4 where it says, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I told you I, I, I didn't believe Jesus had to go through Samaria because of a geographical necessity, but rather a spiritual priority. There were other ways around Samaria, and most Jews went around. There was such a disdain between the Jews and the Samaritans that most Jews would take the long roads in order to avoid going through. They, they hate, socially, they considered them inferior. The Jews considered the Samaritans an inferior people socially, and there are historical and political reasons why that is true, but the most important thing that, that caused the rub was the Jews considered the Samaritans spiritually inferior. They considered them spiritually unclean, and here's why. Because the Samaritans were made up of a remnant of Jews that were left behind during the Assyrian captivity. And that remnant stayed behind, and they began to intermarry with settlers that came from Mesopotamia and Syria and these other places. And they began to, as they intermarried with them, they began to embrace their worship practices and embrace all of these other things that they were bringing with them, which is why this lady in this conversation with Jesus is confused about where worship ought to happen. She's confused because there's been all these outside influences, and the Jews looked at them and considered them completely unclean. So when it says, listen, that Jesus had to go through Samaria, know that that has little to do with direction and everything to do with Jesus creating a worshiper. There was a priority at that well, and Jesus was going to it. Why? Because worship is the goal of all God's moving. I think we see this throughout all of Scripture. I think this is a cover-to-cover -cover truth. If you look at the garden, what do you see? You see Adam and Eve created perfectly, placed in this perfect place where every need is met. They have perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. They live in abundance. Why would God do that? So that they would turn their mind's attention and their heart's affection toward the giver of the gift. I think you see it in the Exodus where God chose for himself a people that were going to be his treasure. He said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And he brought them out of Egypt so that he could bring them into the promised land and have a nation of worshipers for himself. I think you see it in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all those books where God is laying out for his people how they are to worship him and how they are to bring their sacrifice and what they can bring as a sacrifice and how they have to consecrate themselves before they can come into his presence. Why? Because God wants his people to rightly worship him. I think you see it in men and women that God has used to navigate the hearts of his people back to him. I think you see it in Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and in Ruth and in 
David, and then the prophets, these pillars of our faith that God used to steer the hearts of his people. But you know, I also think you see it in Pharaoh and in King Saul and in Nebuchadnezzar, all of who were disobedient, and God used them as discipline in the lives of his people. Because listen, believer, whether in blessing or in discipline, God is moving to make a worshiper out of you. Whether, whether in blessing or in discipline, God is moving to make a worshiper out of you. It is the goal of all God's moving. And I think we see this most clearly declared in the gospel where God would send us Jesus. He would send his son to redeem us back to himself so that through Jesus Christ, we might be restored to a right relationship with him and worship him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter's writing this letter to the church and he's unpacking the glory of the gospel and reminding us that because of our faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the person of Jesus, we have a living hope and we have this inheritance that cannot be taken and it, it cannot be shaken. And I want you to see what he says is the result of our faith in Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, so that that faith may be found to result in what? In praise and in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? He's saying the result of our faith in Jesus is the praise and the glory and honor to God. Why? Because the gospel is about creating worshipers. Worship is the goal of all God's moving. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Worship in spirit and truth is the created purpose of all mankind. Worship is the created purpose of all mankind. Look at verse 16. He says, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Wow. Jesus just starts reading her mail, doesn't he? <laughs> Like, it gets awkward. You want to know how to bring a conversation to a screeching halt? You just do that. You can hear the brakes lock up, right? You know, when I think about this, this Samaritan woman who had been married five times, I'm immediately reminded of the woman who had been married not five but four times. And her, her first husband was a banker, uh, but she divorced him. And her second husband was a movie star, and she divorced him. And the third husband was a preacher, but she divorced him. And her, her fourth and final husband was a mortician. And, and her friend looked at her one day and goes, this is very interesting, the, the guys that you have picked to marry. Why did you marry these guys? And she said, well, I, I married the first one for the money and the second one for the show and the third one to, to get ready and the fourth to go. Come on, that's a pretty good joke, right? <laughs> Come on. God, I could tell that time changed last night. You gotta come on. 
It's an Elvis joke. God, you got to be in there with me. It's good. I'm going to go to the 11 o'clock service. I ain't taking that joke with me, okay? I'm sorry. I had to really do that. I couldn't resist. But think about this moment with her and Jesus. This guy has just revealed something about her that it was impossible for him to know. And why would he do that? Was he being cruel? Was he, was he trying to embarrass her? No. It's important that we see Jesus is working to reveal something in the Samaritan's woman, in the Samaritan woman's life, and he's trying to help her see that she has a created purpose. And he's doing that by lovingly, though painfully, I'm sure, removing the layers of scar tissue that have formed over her heart. Listen, Jesus is always concerned with our hearts. God's word says man looks on the outside, but where does God look? It's on the heart. And sometimes that work he needs to do in our hearts isn't easy and it isn't pain-free, but we must trust him to do it. And this woman has all kinds of scars and hurts that have never healed. Scars from her own efforts to try to find some measure of meaning and purpose. And she has gone from one bad relationship to another, trying to feel loved and valued in any way by somebody. Somebody show me a measure of value and worth. Why? Because she is created to worship something. There is a created purpose that God has chiseled onto her soul. And her whole life, she has let that purpose feed on anything that would make her, even if just for a moment, feel a little bit satisfied. Does that sound familiar to anybody else in this room? You see, the Samaritan woman doesn't have a worship problem. You and I don't have a worship problem. We were created for this, and we, we, are, we are good at it. We, like her, we're always worshiping something. Worship is not the issue. The issue is idolatry. The issue is what we make idols of. The issue is turning that purpose seeking drive that God has created us with onto something that is worth less than the one who gave it to us. That, that's idolatry. Idolatry is valuing something above God in a way that only God should be valued. Idolatry is valuing something above God in a way that only God should be valued. John Piper says this. He said, idolatry starts in the heart. It's a craving, a wanting, and enjoying a being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That's idolatry. And, and what we see from the Samaritan woman is she has made idols of men and of relationships. And because Jesus is moving to make a worshiper out of her, he begins to reveal the things that she has allowed to diminish her created purpose. Believer, listen, you were created for a purpose. Do you believe that? You were created for a purpose, and that is to worship God. It is why you exist. It is why this precious Samaritan woman exists, and anything short of that is a poor substitute for that. Perhaps this morning you're in a season of revealing Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit has you in a season where he's working to peel back some scar tissue. 
so that he can help you see your created purpose. That's what worship does. It's, it's, it's the goal of all God's moving and it's the created purpose of all of us, of all mankind. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Worship in spirit and truth is the satisfaction of our deepest longings. It is the satisfaction of our deepest longings. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He says the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The entire point of this conversation with Jesus is given away in verse 13 and 14. Jesus said, I've come to satisfy you. I've come to satisfy you completely and forever. Now think of the picture Jesus is painting for her every day, every single day. This woman comes to the well. And she doesn't come in the morning when it's cool and it's not burning up hot when everybody else comes. She comes in the heat of the day. Why? Because she's trying to avoid all the people that are there in the morning because they know her. They know her reputation. They know about those five failed marriages. They know she's living with the man she's not married to. They know her her failings, they're not hidden from them. And I got a feeling they often uh, use them against her and remind her of them. So here she is in the heat of the day. And here is Jesus saying to her that these men, where you're going from one relationship to another, these men are never going to satisfy you. The opinion of those people that live in your town, that you're convinced you just wish they would think better of you, that isn't going to satisfy you. But there is something that will satisfy. There is something that will help you realize that you don't need to lessen yourself by living with this man outside of God's good design. There is something that will satisfy in such a way that you can walk in and through your town with your head up and your shoulders back again. There is something that will satisfy and change your life forever. And that is living water. Jesus said, come and drink. Come and be filled. The satisfaction you need is in me, and it is only in me. What was he really inviting her to do? He was inviting her to worship. And he said, but it begins by, by not going to the same shallow, dirty, poisonous wells you've been going to all your life. Aren't you glad God isn't just a God and a father who just yells, stop it at us? <laughs> Anybody with your own children? You, you feel like you've explained why still not seeing obedience. And the next thing out of your mouth is you're at about a 10 of frustration and you just yell, stop it. Or because I said so, right? That's a go-to at my house. Aren't you glad God isn't a just stop it God? But rather, he says, I want you to take an honest look at what you're doing. Because if you'll do that, you will see what I have to offer. 
you'll see the difference between them. Jesus is peeling these layers off of her heart because he wants her to come and be satisfied by the living water. He doesn't want her going back to the same shallow, poisonous, dirty wells. And too often, brothers and sisters, we go to the shallow wells and we drink again and again, hoping that this time, this will be the time that I'll get some measure of satisfaction. And when we do, we are asking that which is not God to do for us what only God can do. So what are the wells in your life? <laughs> what, what are the shallow wells in your life? What are those things that you are going to over and over again to try to find some measure of satisfaction? I want you to see Jesus at the well this morning, and he is saying, come, drink of this living water, and you will never thirst again. Because worship in spirit and truth, worship of God is the satisfaction of our deepest longings. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? For they will be satisfied. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger for God. Blessed are those who prioritize God above all other things. Blessed are those who see God clearly and in seeing God clearly, see themselves clearly. And Blessed are those who know their created purpose. Blessed are those who love God first and love God most. Blessed are those who have learned to worship God because they will be satisfied. So let me just ask you this morning, are you satisfied? If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if there has never been that point in your life where you, had made, where you have made Jesus the Lord of your life and he has moved you from death to life, I'm not talking about trying to go from bad to better. I'm talking about going from dead to alive. And you have, you have been born again. If that hasn't happened Hear me, you can't worship God <laughs> because you cannot worship what is spirit from a spirit that is dead. You must be made alive in Jesus Christ in order to worship God. So have you received this free, glorious, all-satisfying gift of salvation? If you haven't, in just a moment, we're going we're gonna to worship and I want you to step out of that seat and come take one of us by the hand and, and we'll help you do that. Or maybe this morning you just need to repent from the things that you have made into idols, things that you have elevated above God that you have asked to satisfy you in a way that only God can satisfy you. And you just need to bring those things and lay them down. And listen, those could be anything, and they're different. It could be anything, different for all of us. We make idols out of people. We make idols out of positions. We make idols out of power and reputation. We make idols out of images, out of prestige. What have you made an idol of? that you're asking to satisfy you in a way that only God can satisfy. 
Maybe you just need to repent of that this morning. Lay that down and get, ask God to remind you of the all-satisfying um, joy that you have because of the living water. Here's the last thing, and we're done. When was the last time you can say, I truly worshiped? <laughs> when was the last time you can say that I gave God my mind's attention and my heart's affection and I put it on Him because He is worthy of it? Maybe what you need to do in just a moment is do that. Tilt your head back and for the first time in a long time, declare his worth and his glory and his honor and his value by giving him your full mind's attention and your full heart's affection. Church, I, I sincerely hope this has been encouraging to you. And we're gonna, we're gonna pray and then we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing and we're gonna respond. And if you have not found that relationship with Jesus, I am imploring you, today is the day. Don't wait. Come on. If you need to repent of things that you have made into idols, today's the day. Come lay them down. Don't drink at that shallow well anymore. Or if you need to stay right where you are and just declare his worth, do that. Lord, I love you and I'm so thankful for the power of your word, God, and for the joy and, and the treasure that we have in Jesus. And so, Lord, I'm praying right now that as we respond, that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, that you would come, um, and that we would step out in obedience. We love you. We ask this from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's worship.